Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, I am uh, excited to kick off uh, the message of this morning with one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture, Psalm 118. We do this a lot because I like it. And so, uh, repeat after me. Today is the day the Lord has made. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Three times it just makes sense, right? I don't know why. I just like it. Three times you got it. It gets in you. So, um, happy All Hallows Eve and Reformation Day. Thank you. You are welcome. <laughs> um, some of you are probably like, why can't you just say Halloween? Why you got to be weird? Can't you just say Happy Halloween? Why, why you got to be weird and start talking about holidays nobody cares about or knows about? Um, hopefully, this morning uh, you will not leave here without having known exactly what those phrases mean and what Reformation Day is all about and what All Hallows' Eve is all about, um, and that you will care about those a lot. Uh, I know I do, and, and I, I hope to shed some light on that this morning. Um, for the past few weeks, we've been walking through chapters 10 and 11 of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, uh, in our series called Church People. Um, it's no secret that when people talk about church people, it is not always positive. Uh, in fact, it's often pretty negative and hostile. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Uh, sometimes it's the, the church people themselves that are the most hostile and negative about church people. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I, I, I was a child of the 80s, so Halloween was like crazy in the 80s. Like all the regulations that we have a little bit more now where people are a little more, that wasn't there, right? Um, but uh, it was kind of like, it was like a big festival, and I lived in a big neighborhood, um, and, and we, you know, every house was decorated, uh, you know, we got all dressed up in these crazy costumes, and it was really fun and exciting, and I remember one particular house in the neighborhood that was totally blacked out on Halloween. Um, like the doorway was darkened, the blinds were all shut, right, and uh, like all the other houses were intentionally trying to be spooky, but this house was petrifying, Right? Like, they weren't even trying. There was no decorations. There was nothing. It was just silence, right? And so I remember as we were walking by, uh, my friends and I were all just kind of daring each other to go up and ring the doorbell, right? And so finally, I'm like, I'll do it, you know? Uh, I was dressed like Indiana Jones, so I was feeling, like, especially brave, you know? So I slowly, like, creep up the stairs. You know, I got wh a whip in one hand and a pumpkin-shaped candy bucket in the other one, you know? And, and as I approach the front door, I see a note on the front door, taped to the front door. And, and scrawled in black marker on a big white piece of paper were the words, Halloween is the devil's holiday, exclamation point. And I was sure that if I had rung that doorbell, I would have been hit by lightning or like cursed in some way. So I just took off, man. I just ran. It, it really messed me up. So I take off, I run back, and all my friends are like, 
you know, what, what, what are you running for? What's weird? And, and what, what happened? And the first thing that came to my mind was something like church people live there. That's what came, that's, that's uh, church people live there. You know, and everybody's like immediately like, yikes. <laughs> like, you know, and then they're like, how about that house? It's got a bunch of dead people hanging from the trees in the front yard. That's, that looks welcoming. Let's, let's go there. <laughs> like, they were, that's more inviting than the church people house. So, <laughs> um, now, we had no idea about where Halloween came from or why and, and uh, you know, what it was about, why people dressed up or what it all meant. Like, we, it just, to us, was just a fun thing to do. Like, we were aimlessly going with the flow of the world around us, just kind of chasing candy, you know? In some ways, many of us have not grown up from that, just kind of going with the flow, just sort of chasing candy, right? It just turns into things like money or uh, other things. But the point here is that in, in that sense, we, you know, we, it, it seemed like we just were kind of having fun, things didn't really matter, it was all lighthearted, and, and it seemed, though... And I remember this. It seemed like those church people knew something that I didn't. But they clearly weren't really interested in sharing. They just wanted us off their porch. That's what it seemed like to me. Right? So this morning, I want to bring some context and meaning for both Halloween and church people. Right? Hopefully, I want to cast some vision for who we're called to be and how we're called to live as church people, to redeem this sense of what church people is, the honor of being a churchman or a churchwoman, and the, uh, the reality of the calling that's placed on our lives and how we are to live even on Halloween. And so the purpose of this series is to see church people through the eyes of Jesus Christ, not just through the eyes of the world, but through the eyes of Christ Almighty. And when we see church people as he does, it's going to change our perspective entirely. And the goal here isn't to present church people. Church people, waking up my mouth, first service, here we go. It's not to present church people through like rose-colored glasses. Like we're not just sugarcoating things. Like the the point here um, is in fact that when we see one another or when we see church people through the eyes of Jesus Christ, we will see them as who they truly are, because what he sees is true reality. Amen? And so, again, it's not rose-colored glasses here. Church hurt is a real thing. But even more real is forgiveness. And so in this series, I hope to reclaim uh, the why behind the what for gathering together. For loving one another as God's beloved, spirit-filled, redeemed, and gospel-commissioned covenant community. Like, we aren't perfect people, but we are perfectly loved and perfectly positioned to proclaim and demonstrate the grace of Christ to one another in a world that is in desperate need of it. And to proclaim that to the world that's in desperate need of it. And so this is our calling, right? This is why we exist. This is the mission statement of our church, to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other and our city and beyond, from the neighborhood to the nations. Amen? That also includes our neighborhood, right? right so, so, again, why were those church people so upset about Halloween? Like, should we be shutting off the lights and hiding in our homes also? Like, are we missing something? Am I missing something? 
Was I missing something? I definitely was missing something because I was definitely not a believer at that point. Or maybe we should join the aimless flow of society and mock them for not decking their house out with demons. Maybe throw some eggs at him. You know? This morning, we've come to Hebrews 12 again, and, uh, you know, the chapter opens with a vivid metaphor for how Christians are called to live. And it's, it, it's an athletic metaphor, which I love athletic meta- metaphors. And it's a metaphor about what the Christian life is to be like. And what we get here is a call to run. Say run. run. But it's not a call to run away. It's a call to run towards. Specifically to run towards Jesus. And we're not called to aimlessly coast through life. We're given a very intentional purpose that informs everything we do. And I think this is a perfect passage for church people on Halloween, and I'm going to explain why in a bit. So turn with me to Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 3, and we're going to uh, read through this passage, and then I'll drop back and we'll walk through it together. But here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get. You guys ready? Rivet your eyes on Jesus. Consider the heritage of courage and testimony that surrounds you and run the race he set before you with joyful abandon. Rivet your eyes on Jesus. Say rivet. I want you to get that, like I'm talking like somebody bolting something in, like rivet, fix, right? Set your eyes on him like flint. Rivet your eyes on Jesus. Consider, say consider. Consider the heritage of courage and testimony that surrounds you and run. Say run. The race he's set before you with joyful abandon. Abandon of everything else. Right? Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 3. Let's read through it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." So remember this passage is flowing directly out of chapter 10 and 11, which encouraged us over and over and over again to draw near to God and to draw near to each other. That's what we've talked about for the past few weeks. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, uh, it says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's almost like he knew that there would be a sense or a temptation that, uh, of drawing back, shrinking back. And then chapter 11 unloads with story after story after story of men and women who faithfully did exactly that. They weren't perfect people by any stretch of the imagination, but they leveraged their lives by faith in Christ for the kingdom and the glory of God. That's what we saw throughout chapter 11 demonstrated story after story, person after person, men and women, even their children. So chapter 12 then launches directly out of that kind of line of thought, and it gives us this athletic metaphor to describe the way we're called to live. Now, again, I love these athletic metaphors, and they are all throughout the New Testament. Um, Again, this isn't the first time that it uses this kind of metaphor. It's, It's really common. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27, uses a metaphor of a runner 
running in a race and also and or like also a fighter fighting in a ring, right? And then 1 Timothy 6, 11, and 12 says to flee or like sprint away from evil and then fight the good fight. Like you get this picture of like a, 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 an Ali type scenario, right? And then, and then 2 Timothy 2, 5 compares the life of a Christian to an Olympic athlete. Remember, the Olympics are really old. They had them back then, okay? And so it, 2 Timothy 2, 5 compares the life of a Christian to an Olympic athlete who is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, that's interesting, right? In other words, if you want to accomplish God's will, then you need to be faithful and obedient in God's ways, it's a commentary on integrity. Like people miss this sometimes by dismissing God's ways in order to accomplish his will. And in the long run, that never works. Ever. It may be easier in the moment, but in the long run, it does not work out. And then just before the Apostle Paul is beheaded by the Emperor Nero, he wrote in 2 Timothy 4-7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race I have kept the faith. This passage in Hebrews 12 points us to the lives of so many faithful church people throughout history who have gone before as motivation to run our own race well and finish strong. It's an encouragement to the church to not slow down or to back down or to drift or to assimilate into the culture around you. And we think our culture is bad Think about Rome, right, or Corinth. And maybe you don't know much about that. Stay tuned. Maybe we'll give you a little more example, right? But to rivet your heart and your mind to Jesus and to consider those already who have run their race um, or who have run their race already so well with that single-minded devotion to their Savior and their King and His kingdom. So that's exactly what I want to do this morning. So we get a command right out of the gate in verse 1. Right? That's what we see here. It says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Let us run with endurance or perseverance. So how do you know what race you're called to run, though? Like it says the one set before you, so just like anything that's set before you, does that mean, you know, it's like anything that is before me, is that, do I just say yes to that and like you just run hard towards whatever it is? Right? A lot of people operate like that, right? Anybody seen that Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man? You guys seen that? That doesn't work out well, right? That's a, that's a bad idea. Um, so, like, is it, is it the race of upward mobility in your career? Is it the race to get your kids into that prestigious college? Is it the race towards a marriage or a, or a home or 2.5 kids and a dog? Those are nothing really wrong with any of that, right? But is that the race that's necessarily what it's all about? Like that, is that the rat race? Oftentimes that's, that's how society describes all of these purposes in our hearts. It's, it's that, that rat race that society is running and, and then you spend your life on something and then you come up for air at 40 or 50 and you have this midlife crisis about what, what's the point of all this? So how do we know what the race marked out for us even looks like. Part of running fundamentals, if anybody's ever been trained in running fundamentals, um, some of you actually have been, but the first thing that 
you learn is you tend to follow your head. Right? Like where your head is looking is where you're going to tend to go. Like what or who you're focused on is going to determine the direction you're going to move in. Right? So if you're looking backwards, you're going to have a real difficult time running forwards. You ever tried to run like this? You know? It's difficult. This is why verse 2 tells us to look to Jesus. Keep your head up. Like if you run, even if, you've ri- if you run for a long time and you find yourself looking at your feet, you're actually going to do what they call heel striking and slow yourself down with every move. And then you're going to mess your joints up and you're going to start stomping and then you're going to be that guy who's running down the street like this. Right? And so this is literally, you speak to the form of having your head up looking straight ahead and seeing Jesus Christ, that, that you are to look to Jesus because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is our inspirational goal. He is our motivation and our aspiration. He is the reason we run. He is the example of how to run. And he is the very animating force enabling us to run. So look to Jesus. Right? When we look to him, we not only run well, we will want to run well. That's so important. He's everything. And anything that would take our eyes off of him or distract us or trip us up or entangle us or weigh us down, it's got to go. It's got to go. Like it's that sin that makes us shrink back from him rather than run toward him. Like, it's that endeavor that's not really in line with his ways or the race he's marked out for me that pulls my attention away from the call of my good king and my good shepherd who wants and has good things for me and my family. Do I trust that? Do you trust that? But then direction isn't always our issue, right? Like, just not sometimes we can have our eyes fixed on Jesus and we're like, I want to get there. I want to come to you. I want to walk this thing out. I want to run this thing out. But the language of verse 1 is kind of spot on. Like, I, I, honestly, I feel like this kind of resonates. When it says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So in order to run this race well, efficiently, with endurance and that strength, you got to get rid of every weight and, and, and lay it aside. And, then it's, and it says this sin which clings so closely. Like you get this picture of a runner that's trying to run the good race, but it's a struggle. Like the runner's restricted and, and, and weighed down by sin that's clinging closely, like an encumbrance, right? Like a runner trying to finish the race wearing cheap skinny jeans. You ever seen somebody walk around in cheap skinny jeans? I'm not talking about the elastic kind. I'm talking about the one that you can't even skip a step, you know, to get up. You're like, you do like the, like you're trying to get on a horse as you're walking, you know? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just don't want to admit it. (laughs) Um, Some of you are in here this morning, like sitting down like this. I got to be careful. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, but, but again, like it, it can be like that and, 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 and I, you know, that's how sin can be. It just kind of adheres to us and then you get comfortable with it and you put up with it for whatever reason. Like you don't even know what unrestricted movement is like until you set it aside, Right? 
You put on some shorts and you're like, oh, man, I can run. You know? We just think it's normal because we get familiar with things like worry or lust or rage or gossip or slander. They become normal. It's easy to become accustomed to taking offense to every little thing that you don't even notice how restrictive your bitterness actually is. Because it's just normal. You know, when somebody offends you, you're like, oh! And you lean into how victimized you are. Or pride, complaining, greed, it'll all cling so closely that you don't even notice it until you realize that all of your attempts to run after Jesus are becoming more and more exhausting. And the good race becomes a burden. It just seems so hard, and Jesus has set you free to lay all that stuff down, to cast it away, right? To run the race and his, his freedom and, and his grace with his, looking at his face. I mean, like, I don't, that, it rhymes, it just does. I'm not trying to, it, it, we, we, we want to do that, but instead we, we tend to want to hold on to it. We tend to want to like, we don't want to lay it aside. Even though it's restricting our movement and constantly tripping us up, it seems easier, instead of laying it aside, it, it, it seems easier to just kind of shrink back and drift over to the sidelines. Maybe just kind of associate with those who are actually in pursuit of Christ's call in their lives and say, that's their story, that's their race, that's their thing, that's their, they, wow, look at them, they're like real Christians, or they're radical Christians. You know what radical means? It comes from the word radish in root. It, it means like the, the, the etymology of it is that it's like the root, it's to the source. A radical Christian is one who looks to the source, almost like it's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen? So this is, like, if you're not a radical Christian, you might not be a Christian. This is the point that I'm talking about here. Now, I'm not talking about being, like, perfect or anything like that. I'm talking about wanting to run, want, desiring to run. Even if you're tripping and falling and stumbling, and and it's a matter of going, man, okay, I'm going to get up, and I want to move forward. But rather than confess and repent and faithfully run the race that he's set before you, um, you know, it, we can tend to, it's much easier to just kind of move to the sidelines, right? But here's the really good part. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is, not you. That means that he's the rock-solid foundation that gives stability to our every stride as he calls us forward. That means that he's also the perfecter of our faith, which, which means that he's determined to finish the good work that he started in you. That you can trust in him, that he's determined to see the thing all the way through. So when I get distracted or weighed down or entangled and I'm tempted to check out from the race, he doesn't just stand at the finish line shouting at me like, what are you doing? Like if you're in here this morning and you think that I'm sitting here going, what are you doing? Be better, run better, run faster. Why can't you run faster? It's not it at all. Not at all. He's the good shepherd who comes to get me and remind me that I'm his and to return to the good race that he's placed before me. No matter how far I go, he comes and immediately, it's like he just picks me up and puts me back on the track. 
with him. He's the good shepherd who pursues even the one lost sheep. This is repentance. Repentance means, again, to take your gaze off of sin and place it on your Savior. Right? It's confessing that his ways are the true ways and refocusing our attention on him and the path he's placed before us, even and especially when it's difficult. It's laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely so we can run with endurance. And, and so we set it aside and so it doesn't keep us from where we want to go. And where do we want to go? We want to draw near to Jesus and one another. We want to advance his kingdom upon the earth and make disciples who make disciples and fulfill his great commission. We want to draw near. We want to run near. Like drawing near to Jesus isn't just like, all right. It's like, there he is. If you're truly free, you'll be running towards him. Let me say that again. If you're truly free, you will run towards Jesus with everything you've got. Like a lot of people are like, well, I'm free to do whatever I want. If you're doing anything other than running to Jesus, you're not free. You're enslaved. He sets us free. He sets us free. If you, who the Son has set free is free indeed. The whole reason we can set aside our sin and not look back is because of what he did for us at the cross. Right? Like we, It's even more reason for us to spend our lives running the race that he's marked out for us is when we behold what he did for us at the cross. Like This is the gospel, that God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now through the indwelling of his spirit. So he not only saves us from sin, he liberates us to run the race by clothing us in grace. To run hard after him. So we look to him as the founder of our faith who ran the race perfectly. Like, look, look at the way Jesus ran. I, I hope this makes you want to run well. I, I, know it makes, I know it does for me. Look at this. Verse 2. So verse 1 it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then verse 2. Who for the joy, say joy. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now the first century church, some context here. The, the, the church this letter was originally written to, they were dealing with so much temptation to check out from the race altogether. That's the context of this. To just go kind of sit on the sidelines. Right? They'd put in their time. They were an older church. They had already gone through uh, a wave of trial and persecution and tribulation. And, and another one was building on them. And they were growing weary and faint-hearted. That's the context of this letter. He's writing to them to encourage them to persevere. But verse 2 and 3 reminds them of Jesus. And how he was stripped naked and shamed at the cross. And he didn't like it. Right? He despised it. It was detestable to him. Like, it was extreme injustice to the nth degree. It was difficulty like we can't even imagine. It was a weariness like we can't begin to comprehend. But he faithfully persevered. Like, it's not very trendy to think of Christ's perseverance at the cross as a motivation for our daily lives as Christians. Right? 
Like, in fact, I often hear people say things like, Christ endured those difficulties so I don't have to. You ever heard that before? Maybe some of you have said that before. In some ways, they're right, right? Christ was forsaken at the cross on our behalf, so we never have to be forsaken. And we never will be when we place faith in him. But scripture's clear that that's no justification for shrinking back from the inevitable difficulties that come with running the race that he set before us well as we fulfill the Great Commission. That's the reality. I'm not here preaching come to Jesus and everything is going to be easy. I am preaching come to Jesus and you will have deep joy, eternal, everlasting life, abundant life. I am saying it's going to be good, but not easy. In Colossians 1, verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. The 21st century in me is like, rejoice in your sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. That's an interesting passage. First of all, what's lacking <laughs> in Christ's affliction? I thought it was the finished work at the cross, right? What's lacking? That news has got to get to those that don't know it. It's the only thing that's lacking. He's talking about the purpose of getting this good news of the finished work of Christ at the cross and resurrection out to those who haven't heard it. The only thing that's lacking is getting the message out, and this is his race. He's talking about making disciples and bringing them up into maturity. And that often involves a lot of difficulty and sacrifice to make disciples who make disciples, to love one another as Christ has loved me. As he's loved you, you are to love one another. This is how they will know that you are his disciples, is by your love for one another, according to Jesus in John 13. So he, he does this, and, and, and he does it joyfully. That's what I want you to see. He's not like begrudging or, or, or like, oh, it's so hard. They don't listen to me. You know, it's not what he's doing. He goes on again to describe it in more detail in Colossians 1, 28 through 29. And hear me, this is, not, this is not for like the professional Christians, whatever that means. This is not just like for pastors or like the great apostles. It's not the guys that are, and the women that are like running the, the race and you see them and you're like, wow. And you're on the sidelines like, ah, wow, that's pretty awesome. Like, look at them go. No, 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 no. Hear this. Him we proclaim. Colossians 1, 28 through 29, we do this, we the church, right? In fact, I've said it before, the role of a pastor is to equip the saints, that's you, for the ministry. So him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Watch this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. My man is running, and he's running his race with all the energy of the Spirit of God, and it works so powerfully within him, the same Spirit that's within you. So guys, this is the race that we've all been called to. It may look different for different people, but it's the same goal, and it's the same Jesus, and it's the same Spirit. Amen? 
And none of it is easy. It just isn't. But it's so good. And it's so worth it. And it's all worthy of a ton of rejoicing. Like what an honor to be invited into the most eternally significant mission in creation. These are church people. This is who you are called to be. This is the call to persevere in your race. It's a call to fight and to run and to draw near to God and to one another and to point to Jesus and what he did at the cross for us all so that we can run our race as well and finish strong. And my favorite part of this passage is where it spells out the primary motive for Christ's endurance, which was joy. Say joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's the why behind the what for Jesus, and it's the why behind the what for you and me. Like, it's the joy set before him that both defined the race marked out for him and gave him that riveted resolve to accomplish it. So what's the joy that was set before him? What what was it? I think it was two things, actually. The joy of drawing near to God the Father. Right? Get a picture of the Trinity here. He's on the cross. He's like, man, I'm trying to get on the other side of that cross, right? And then two is the joy of drawing near to the Father with you and me and his church. You are the joy. You were. That's what the cross represented. That was his finish line. That was what fully accomplished, or what was fully accomplished when he said it is finished. He had paved the way to draw near to God and one another together for eternity. This was his purpose from the beginning, and he was racing for the finish line. That cross didn't just represent pain. It represented redemption, and he knew it, and he joyfully entered into it because he knew what was on the other side of it. Now, that doesn't mean he was happy about it. There's a big difference between happy and and joyful, right? Happiness depends on the circumstances that surround you, your happenstances, right? But joy is way deeper, way deeper. The stability of true life in Christ comes from joy in Christ, rejoicing in him. Because he definitely was not happy about this. But that doesn't mean he wasn't, again, Because he was joyful, it doesn't mean that he wasn't in deep desperation and even searing agony. Like, I don't think any of us can comprehend the physical and and especially the spiritual torment that Christ went through. But he did it. And he he did it for the joy of being with you and you being with him and the joy of us all being with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the joy of the redemption of all things. He was forsaken so you never have to be so that we can enter into this ultimate eternal joy so that we could draw near to God and to one another in fellowship with Christ for eternity. In John 17, verse 20 through 23, This is the high priestly prayer. And Jesus is just, just before he goes to the cross, he's praying and he's actually praying over his disciples. And I love this passage because it's talking about you and me. Like literally. Verse 20, he says this. I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples that are right before him. He's praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I want you to see, like, 
the cloud of testimony that immerses us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Woo! That's church people. This is our invitation. This is who we're called to be as church people. Now there's a secondary motivation here also. The secondary motivation is given to us in Hebrews. Uh, there's another one. that It's like the primary motivator here to run our race and our inspiration is to consider Christ himself, right? To rivet our eyes on him. But there's another one. And that's the cloud of witnesses. The cloud of witnesses who have finished their own races and their testimonies cheer us on as we run ours. The believers who have gone before and run their races well. It's a reference to all those faithful men in chapter 11. And as I said before, this is why I think this passage is such a perfect passage for Halloween. Because this day has historically been a day for God's people to shine in the dark and bring redemption to what the enemy has twisted. So bear with me, all right? Because for the rest of the time, I'm going to give you some, uh, a, a brief history of how so many faithful church people have brought light to the darkness throughout history and why October 31st is a fantastic time to honor their lives. It's why it's called All Hallows' Eve and why it's called Reformation Day. So these are part, what I'm going to talk about here is part of the cloud of witnesses who have finished their races strong and are now with Christ in heaven. So let's, let's bring a little why behind the what first for what we know as Halloween, okay? So that we can be agents of redemption and light even in the dark. So some of the origins, some of you may have known this before, but I will rehash it and remind. Some of the origins of Halloween date back to an extremely ancient pagan festival like Samhain. Anybody ever heard that before? Samhain? Somebody like, first name Sam, last name Hain? <laughs> it's actually uh, pronounced more like Sawin. That's how it sounded. Something like that. It was a celebration of the powers of death and darkness as winter approached. So the Druids believed that the veil between the spiritual realm was thin during transitions from light into dark, like dusk. And it was especially thin in the transition into winter. And so Samhain, or Sawin, was the lord of death. And during this festival, it was believed that he sent out evil spirits to seek out and attack humans. And so the only way that you could escape his attack was by disguising yourself as one of those evil spirits. So you would dress up as one of those evil spirits so they wouldn't attack you and realize that you were human so this wasn't just like a silly superstition i mean in some ways it definitely was but the reality is is that this was a celebration and has become a celebration of the very spirit of death and believers spirit-filled life-filled abundant redeemed people of god hear me the enemy jesus liberated us from is the spirit of death and he did so to the spirit of life. This is who we are. 
So as the message of light and life in Christ spread into these regions where Samhain or Samhain was, was a big, important festival, the church, church people, decided to redeem this festival that celebrated death and darkness by celebrating life and light instead. Because it's what we do. We're agents of redemption in a fallen world. And so All Hallows Day was created as a day to honor the lives of Christians who had passed on to be with Jesus. That was as far as the 5th century, as far back as the 5th century they can trace that. It's a celebration of victory over death and eternal life and a time to honor our heritage of faith. Of course, many continued to celebrate death rather than life, but it was always, always, always an opportunity for redemption. And so the combination of Sawin and All Hallows' Eve, combined with the thick Old English accents, is probably where we get the word Halloween from. By, this, by the uh, 15th and 16th century, that's like 1400s-ish, the word of God itself had become hijacked by worldly agendas. The church had become associated with a religion which had the appearance of godliness, but was denying its true power. And so the word of God was held hostage by an elitist religious system that was founded more upon the authority of humans than the actual word of God. The Bible itself was written originally in Greek and Hebrew. Many of you know that. And it was, had only been at this point translated into a relatively inaccurate Latin language, which only educated priests could read and understand. So the only people who had access to the actual word of God were people that were highly educated by a corrupt system. You guys seeing this? That's the context. But even as early as the mid to late 1300s, faithful men like a man named John Wycliffe, who was an Oxford professor, Oxford's really old, um, he spoke up saying that the Bible should be translated into the common language for all to read it for themselves. Like Wycliffe dared, uh, well, I'm sorry, declared, he dared a lot of things, but um, Wycliffe declared Scripture to be the highest authority, not the opinions of men, no matter how educated they were. So just a generation after Wycliffe, a professor named John Huss at Prague University was influenced by Wycliffe's writings and he began to confront corruption and superstition even within that religion and teach the scriptures as the highest authority even to common people. He began to just teach people the scriptures and read it to them in their common language. That was wild back then because everything was just done in Latin. In some places, it still is. And it's still just as irrelevant now as it was then. So just a generation after Wycliffe, a professor named John Huss, this guy, in 1415, he starts picking up the baton and he's excommunicated and sentenced to execution for heresy. And as he's about to be burned at the stake, he famously shouts out, and I have this on the slide here, John Huss shouts out, my goose is cooked, which the word Huss, his last name is the bohemian term for goose. So he says, my goose is cooked, which you can almost hear like there's a joy in there. He's about to be burned. And he says, my goose is cooked, but 100 years from now, a swan will arise whose voice you will not be able to silence. That was in 1415. Those prophetic words echo with deep confirmation throughout history because almost exactly 100 years later, a man named Martin Luther did in fact arise. And they could not silence 
his voice. And on October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, 1517, he posted the famous 95 Thesis or 95 Propositions onto the Wittenberg Church door in Germany, which set off the greatest reformation in Western civilization. And he did it all on All Hallows' Eve, which is why today we celebrate Reformation Day and this cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by. To Luther's eyes, we're riveted to Christ and his word, but he also encouraged and inspired, uh, or I'm sorry, he was also encouraged and inspired by the cloud of witnesses who had gone before him. People like Wycliffe and Huss and Augustine or Augustine at the church fathers, the apostles, the prophets, all who ran their race well, everyone in chapter 11, all of them with their eyes set like flint upon the founder and perfecter of their faith, Jesus Christ. Even the Old Testament, they look towards him as we look back to him. He is the center of eternity. So this is our heritage. This is the heritage of church people who, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, joyfully run the good race before us for God's glory alone. That was the anthem of the Reformation. It still is. So, so many people... They want to talk about the Crusades, they want to talk about church, they want to talk about all the things, that these crazy, manipulative, domineering, nonsensical people who called themselves church people did throughout history. But that's not our heritage. That's not our heritage because that's not necessarily the true church. It's definitely not the church that Jesus sees. That's our heritage. I want you to see that church and see that that's your heritage. That's who we are. I'm talking about the church people that Jesus sees. I'm talking about those who desire to draw near to God and to one another and draw near to God with one another. I'm talking about guys like William Tyndale. Do I have time? I do. Who fled from England into Germany. This guy, not long after Luther set off the Reformation, this guy named William Tyndale, maybe you've heard his name. Look on some Bibles. You'll see him in there. He, he, uh, flees from England to Germany so that he could translate the Bible from the original Hebrew into, and Greek into English. And then they had him, he had those Bibles smuggled illegally back into England. This happened. It was extremely dangerous because anybody that got caught would probably be killed. This is a guy who heard a priest once say that it was better to be without God's law than the Pope's law. He heard a man say that. And the audacity and blasphemy of that statement set Tyndall off, and he famously declared this, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than the Pope does. You know what? He succeeded. Tyndall's race was run well. Through, through, though he endured all kinds of extreme hardship, he was able to complete an English translation from the original Greek that made it into the hands of the common people of England. The printing press sent it out like fire. Tyndall was arrested and burned at the stake in October of 1538. But before they lit the fire, taking a cue from his forerunner, John Huss, Tyndall famously shouts out a prayer saying this, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. In less than two years, Tyndall's prayer was answered. In 1540, King Henry VIII ordered that every parish in England was required to provide a copy of the English Bible to its parishioners. (laughs) 
And then not long after that, King James would commission a group of scholars to make the King James Version available to everybody, and they heavily relied upon Tyndale's work and his research. Now, I wish I had time to tell you about faithful men and women who risked their lives to smuggle those Bibles into England and all the people who stood for the truths of the gospel as they read them or the wealthy merchants who funded men like Luther and Tyndale, extremely wealthy businessmen and women, a guy like Henry Monmouth who leveraged all that he had for the gospel and was imprisoned for his support of Tyndale and he almost lost his life in the midst of it. He was so wealthy, though, that they let him go because it would have been such a hit on the economy. That's called leveraging your resources for the kingdom. If you want to know more about these stories, there's an there's a amazing book called Gospel Patrons by John Reinhardt. I dare you to read it without weeping. It'll mess you up in all kinds of good ways. So the message of the true gospel has gone forward throughout the faithful. The races that they ran, so many witnesses over the centuries, we've been commissioned to continue the course. We've been handed the the baton, so to speak, and empowered by the Spirit of God himself to rivet your eyes on Jesus, to consider the heritage of courage and testimony that surrounds you, and to run the race that he set before you with joyful abandon. Now remember that we don't run this race in order to get salvation, right? That's what these guys are all standing for. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We run it because we have salvation. Because he's worth it. Because he's good. Because he's our good shepherd and he calls us forward to himself to go where he's already gone and he provided a way. Like he doesn't just stand behind us and drive us like cattle by fear with a whip. That's not what he does. We don't run this race out of fear of being scolded or punished or called out. That's not what this is about. He is our Savior and our King and our Good Shepherd. We run this race in pursuit of Him who calls us forward in joy because He's gone ahead of us. And He says, draw near to me. Run near to me. Trust me. Have faith in me. This is who we are. This is church people. Let's pray.